Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Robbie Martin. Abby's not here today, but we have a very special guest who we had on before the election uh, to talk about Trump winning the Republican primaries, or I guess we talked about it before he won the Republican primaries, but um, Daniel Wright is uh, back to join us on Media Roots Radio. And Daniel writes for Shadowproof, um, which is a great website that I recommend everybody check out. Um, it's, uh, it is the new version of Fire Dog Lake. Well, it's not really new now. It's been around for how many years, Daniel? Uh, August, last August, so over a year. Oh, wow. Just barely. Okay. Congratulations. <laughs> and, Still uh, here. um, so we did a podcast. I don't remember exactly when, I think it might've been in May or was it at later than that? It was, it was, um, I listened to it again because it was so prophetic. It was before, I can tell because it was before the Ohio and Florida primaries because we were saying tomorrow, I believe we were talking on a Monday, and I think it was March. I think it was March. I'm not positive, but it's, it began with an M. But we were, it was before the Ohio and Florida primaries. And I have to just, let's give ourselves a little credit here. That conversation was pretty much on point about how things actually played out. Like, it is perfect. Like, this, if this happens, this happens. Uh, what the Republican Party is going to try to do to stop Trump, they're not going to be able to. And, and also, we both kind of agreed that the Clinton campaign was dumb to want Trump because Trump was so unpredictable and you couldn't figure out how to beat him. And little did we know, God, so much has happened, but WikiLeaks showed that the Clinton campaign not only wanted Trump, they had a strategy they had a strategy memo to make sure it was called the Pied, Pied Piper strategy memo. This is from the John Podesta emails to their, make Trump the nominee. Their strategy worked great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. So they wanted Trump. We both said you should watch out for Trump. Uh, we also were talking about the role InfoWars or Alex Jones was playing. I mean, it's, it's a pretty – to listen to it now – after Trump, Donald J. Trump is the president-elect. It's a little scary, but we, we were pretty much on point. I mean, I don't – the forecasters have taken a real beating, but the <laughs> this our conversation was actually <laughs> pretty close to how things played out. So uh, eat your heart out, Nate Silver. Yeah, I was, uh, I was surprised because I, I didn't remember it being as prophetic as it was, and I went back and listened to it, and I was really surprised by how many things we predicted – but I have to acknowledge that, um, and I don't know if you shared this mindset with me, but uh, I got kind of sucked into the media, mainstream media cycle over Trump. And I really convinced myself that he had no chance of winning just based on the fact that the media was full tilt against him. And I don't mean to say that to make him seem like an underdog or that he, you know, is a victim of any kind, but they they really were trying to make him out to be, you know, the, they were trying to make him lose. Um, they were, they were promoting Hillary and not really going after her critically. And it was only until the seemed like the zero hour where they started talking about the Podesta emails. I mean, like places like CNN and even Fox news weren't even really talking about it that much. So, but did, were you as surprised as I was? I mean, did you go along with thinking that Trump had no chance over the summer? Or were you still? Well, what's important to keep in mind is 
you shouldn't feel bad, and no one should feel bad about this, because the media, which typically before, when there was a very centralized media, they would gaslight people. They would make people think it was impossible, and because they controlled information flow, you can gaslight someone if you can really control their environment. But now the media is so bifurcated or fragmented, they can't do it. But they, for people who are big media consumers like you and me, they not only gaslit, tried to gaslight us, they gaslight lit themselves. <laughs> they, they ended up <laughs> screwing their, scrambling their own brains. And nobody had a tougher sort of meltdown reaction to Trump's win than the mainstream media themselves. The New York Times had written uh, this guy, Jim Rutenberg, who's a media reporter he took over for the late um, Carr, David Carr, I think his name was. And he had written this thing called, like, we can't cover Trump objectively. This was like a few months ago. We can't cover him objectively, so why even try? We're just going to call him a liar. And after Trump's victory, Salzberger and uh, Dean Baquette, the, the current editor, managing editor, Salzberger, the owner, longtime family paper, said, like, we blew it, and, like, we're going to rededicate our, quote-unquote, rededicate ourselves to just doing journalism again. We completely lost it. We completely blew it. So they gaslit a lot of people. I was definitely feeling it a little bit. I mean, certainly towards the end when they just kept saying, like, do the math, do the math. There's no way he can win the Electoral College. Do the math, do the math. He'd have to flip all these states. Yep. And I was, like, sort of, I, I got a little, like, yeah, maybe, but then I also remembered, and this may be my the benefit of living in the East Coast, and I, I think you're a West Coast guy, like, I know PA. Like, they'll vote for Trump. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And, like, and that's all he actually needed. The blue wall was, he, she had to keep the entirety of the blue wall. That's why this recount effort actually is going on right now is interesting, because for it to even have a chance of working, which it probably doesn't, Hillary has to flip Wisconsin, Michigan, and PA, all three. If she lo if she can't flip, if she can only flip two, she still loses. That's how much Trump blew her out from an electoral college perspective. So I was like, if Trump can win PA, sure, Philadelphia is not will turn out. They'll have a large African-American vote. But there's people out in the sticks. I mean, Philadelphia, I mean, Pennsylvania is Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Alabama in between, right? That's It's like real deep sticks. It's real country, real rural. Uh, of all the people who had high turnout, this cycle was the Amish who <laughs> came out. They, vote, they they beat all their old numbers of turnout to vote for Trump. They loved him. I don't know what that phenomenon is. I I don't have the time to investigate it. They don't they don't blog obviously because they don't believe in electricity. But but so I thought PA could happen. But I was absolutely. I mean the the gaslighting was so intense. Like this is over. This could be a blowout. <laughs> Trump's going to lose. You know, Trump's going to only get a few states. And so I didn't buy it wholesale, but I definitely, because I was reading them, was in this bubble. And what was very interesting now to think about, particularly for alternative media, is a lot of the country simply doesn't read the mainstream media or view the mainstream media or is any way affected by even their gaslighting campaigns where they try to demoralize the opposition by saying, we have the facts, and this isn't even a factor. So I was—I have to say that I got—I felt it because I was absorbing so much of the propaganda. Cause it was hard not to feel a little bit of it, but I, I was also cognizant of the fact that this country, Trump—I mean, the appeal of Trump is—is is a different kind of appeal than a typical Republican. I actually still think we were right in March when we said 
a typical Republican probably couldn't beat Hillary Clinton. So she was playing with fire. If she got Ted Cruz, I think she would she'd be president easily because he has no yeah. appeal. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And it's it's so funny that listening back to that podcast, I mean, Ted Cruz was still a very relevant, you know, player in all of this. I mean, it, it is sort of weird to think that it was really down to him and Trump, you know, after because he he sort of does sit in that uh i guess kind of gray zone between establishment republican and sort of tea party you know baiting i mean he's not i wouldn't really call him a real tea partier but he wanted to present himself that way and that's kind of what trump was sort of tapping into as well even though not as overtly but um all the establishment candidates were completely obliterated uh in the republican (laughs) primary um Jeb, Marco, uh, I mean, it was very clear they had no chance at a certain point. Um, but no, that's a really good, (laughs) it's a really good way to describe it uh, that they gaslit themselves because you're right that the, that, that, that whole approach trying to gaslight their audience was very effective in previous elections. And I think back to Ron Paul, um, running in 2008 and then again in 2012, um, and both times they, they effectively were able to do that, to basically tell their audience he's crazy, he's a loon, um, he wants to abolish the IRS and the Department of Education. They would basically only mention his most, you know, extreme libertarian positions and then also tell everybody that he was crazy, don't vote for him. And that actually seemed to work uh, for the most part. Um, you know, I, oh, yeah. I would hear regular people parroting talking points about Ron Paul who'd never even heard of Ron Paul before, you know, until until the media told them what to say. Um, so, it would be, be interesting to see what would happen if he, you know, would, would have been running now, um, not at his age necessarily now, but like the Ron Paul from 2008, what would have happened if he ran in this election? I think he would have had a, a not a good chance of winning, but he at least would have been in a position where they wouldn't have been able to gaslight their audience into thinking he was nuts. He, he would have crossed that barrier or that threshold that you're sort of talking about. Well, and there's also, there's two parts of that I want to dig into, actually, because I think you're onto something. One is, what happened also to Trump, you can't forget, is Fox and the Republicans in the conservative movement built a parallel gaslighting system, if you want, media system. And they went up against Trump and lost and it's a question of whether they were trying to control one party and then this, the liberal media, quote-unquote, would control democratic opinion and moderate opinion. And I really wonder on the dynamics if it wasn't just the fact that, yes, there's this underlying trend that more alternative media is getting more play. Facebook is a major factor, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then a kind of spiderweb dynamic where Ron Paul is not big enough. He can get caught in the web. But Donald Trump is so heavy, he just breaks the entire web with his media presence. <laughs> so they can't catch him in it. Like, that was what happened is he was so, such a major personality, such weight, such power that they try to catch him in the web and then come in and, you know, rip him apart. But he would just collapse the web and they kind of just ultimately bow to him, which is what happened with Fox News. He got in a straight up um, power struggle with Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes yeah. and won. And by the end of it, they basically were recovering Trump full-time. Sean Hannity completely flipped 
from a Ted Cruz supporter to basically, yep. I mean, some people are saying sort of a Trump lapdog. Megyn Kelly, who had been out there trying to get him from day one, backed off completely. So it's one thing to say the Trump phenomenon in and of itself, he has such media power. And also, he was able to define himself before they could define him, meaning you never heard of Ron Paul before. Okay, where's the media's power? The media's power is defining him, giving you a first impression. Yeah. Before you've ever heard of Ron Paul. Everyone's heard of Donald Trump. 100% name ID, just like Hillary Clinton. So 100% name ID, long-running reality TV show, which is the new medium that he's the master of. They're kind of the old medium, right? TV news, cable news. That's kind of 1990s. Donald Trump's in the aughts, in the late aughts. He's got the new, he's got his hand on the new system. So I think it was that. Just his, per, he was just too powerful, too heavy to stay in the web. And the other part of it is. You see who they lashed out at, the mainstream media at least, after the election. They're, they're on this witch hunt now for fake news sites and Kremlin propaganda. And now everybody's a Kremlin propaganda outlet because they're, they're so demoralized themselves by the fact that it's clear they don't have that much influence. And Because they did everything they could to get Hillary elected. Not this gaslighting, but all these negative stories on Trump. That's why when I see partisan Democrats out here saying the media never went after Trump... I'm like, are you kidding me? There is an endless series of stories. I, I could, you know, the Washington Post basically should have been making in-kind contributions to Hillary Clinton's campaign. They were going after him every day. And so, so I think it's those two dynamics. It's one, Ron Paul never had the media power, the star power, the momentum that Trump has, and or the or the or the guy, or he also was not a guy who cut his teeth for his first thirty or forty years in tabloid media, counterpunching New York tabloid magazines. So I think Ron Paul, on the one hand, never had that kind of star power or media skills or savvy. And also the ground, which I think your point is also correct, that the ground shifting underneath their feet. Less and less people read or trust. Trust is at historic lows, the media, so they can't play. So, yeah, I think Ron Paul would probably have a better chance if he had run for the first time in 2016 instead of 2008 or whatever. But he still wouldn't have had Trump's advantages. But he'd do better. I, th I think that's true. Yeah, I think um, you're right about the the idea of the sort of out of the gates, um, Trump wasn't able to be defined by the media. And they tried very hard to try to contextualize him as being a pathological liar and being also like a white supremacist dog whistler um, and possible KKK sympathizer. Um, and I feel like the pathological liar strategy seemed more effective maybe, but somehow it didn't ever really stick or work. Um, and I would argue that he is on some level, maybe not a pathological liar, but he is a serial liar. Um, and, you know, uh, part of me thinks it might even be strategic. Um, I was, I don't even remember, maybe I was talking to you about this, but the sort of the signal to noise ratio, if you lie all the time about all these little things that don't even really make sense, then the real lies, the more important ones, are almost harder to define or to sort of pick out. So, call me crazy, but it almost seems like that could have been, you know, a strategy. But at the same time, he is a sort of a blowhard. Seems like he has just this tendency to just say whatever comes into his head, even if it's true or not. Um, but mm, uh, that's a good question. I, my view, if you want my yeah, 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 that. sure. Um, it is strategic. Um, if you see the way he uses it, 
and, and what he understands is, I think he understood two things that are amazing because he doesn't come off like someone this strategic, is scandalous stuff is more interesting. So a lot of this other stuff that happens, that's what the press would rather talk about. And lie, you know, telling one of these big lies is a great way to distract from another story that might hurt you more. So he'll keep, he'll keep putting out stories like flag burning today or other type of stories, and you're not talking about business connections, so, which cl clearly means it's somewhat strategic. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of interesting because, yes, he's, he's lying, but he's always doing it at these very opportune times, and he also understands that everyone hates the fact-checkers. And the media did endlessly. They used to come out with these, you know, kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of low-key people would come out, well, the facts say this and the facts say that. And by the time you've done that 50 times, it looks like nitpicking, which it kind of is, kind of. Some of these things were really not factually correct. But a lot of it was nitpicking or, you know, taking him literally, which he never wants, which, you know, is never his thing. And that's what a defender said, Peter Thiel, his favorite defender said, we take Trump seriously, but we don't take him literally. And so these fact checkers are wasting their time, and which is kind of a good uh, line on that. But it's also just people don't like the fact checkers. People don't like the kid in the class who's correcting everyone's grammar. It's it's well, not good. You know, what I mean, nobody likes that person. So I think it's strategic. I agree. He probably enjoys it too, which might make him get carried away with it. But if you look at how he does it, and when he does it, and the opportune times he uses, man, it is so well done, that you have to think there's some strategy here. He doesn't like the conversation, so let me change the conversation by injecting something crazy hyperbolic. I I tend to agree with that. Um, you know, there, there are some times where I'm like, okay, his Hamilton tweets, you know, there were, I saw that, actually some mainstream people being like, don't pay attention to these Hamilton tweets, he's trying to misdirect us. And I was kind of <laughs> like, no, he's, no, he's not, he's just a, a baby, but I mean, actually, part of me thinks it's that he was, I, and you know, maybe it was from his settlement that he just did um, with Trump oh, yeah. University, or maybe it's to distract away from the fact that he just is putting Eric Prince's wife into a, a position of power. I believe, um, what is it, Department of Education or yeah. uh, yep. Secretary of Education? What's the actual official name? Uh, for Secretary that? of Education. Yes, she'll be Secretary of Education. Which to me is mind blowing for all these people who you know, thought that somehow Donald Trump was going to push out all the military contractors and, and military hawks. I mean, just that al alone is is um, is something that would be good to distract away from. But I wanted to touch on what you said earlier about how he, that, that Fox News tried to do their own version of gaslighting to try to make their own viewing audience um, dislike Trump. Because that's something that we've never seen before from Fox News, which is normally a total arm of the Republican Party. And they, they exist mainly to prop up the establishment candidates or people within the Republican Party, including neoconservatives. Um, and I, I, that, to me, was one of the most fascinating aspects of this election, is watching what appeared to be a rift taking place at Fox News to the point where Somehow, Roger Ailes, who had been sexually harassing women and employees for the last 30 years, was all of a sudden outed as being <laughs> this, this, you know, sexual, sexual harasser. Now, that timing to me is very peculiar, um, you know, where it seems like, and from what I've read, that Roger Ailes was actually very pro-Trump. 
behind the scenes and at Rupert Murdoch was not. Um, and I don't know if there's, if that's entirely accurate, but it's no, seemed, that's accurate. That's it, accurate. It seems to me like Roger Ailes was thrown under the bus by Murdoch or p- other people above him because they, they, that was part of that battle going on at Fox news. That was, that was a side effect hmm. of it, if you will. I, I don't that's know. A, yeah. I mean, I could be, I think there's definitely was an internal battle between Murdoch, whose politics are much more neoliberal. Yeah. And, you know, he would have been fine with Hillary Clinton. In fact, he had, he kind of liked Hillary Clinton. Um, there was no, so, whereas Ailes was more of a Trump guy, um, I'm not saying that there, there was some sort of breakdown going on because Murdoch has this, these two, he wants to make a lot of money, but he also does like to have his influence, particularly as he gets older, apparently. He's more interested in having influence, but he's actually getting less. So, I don't know if that breakdown eventually had something to do with the Ailes going down, although it does look like when Ailes got in trouble, man, did they drop him fast. So it probably created, I don't think it has a one-to-one ratio with the Trump thing, but it probably contributed to an acrimony between them that, you know, it made it a lot easier to kick him out the door considering he couldn't really do the dirty work anymore. I mean, they, they went all in on trying to destroy Trump and, Trump ended up basically telling them that you need to either get in line or I'll just start going elsewhere, which is something he's done to all the media. But with Fox, when when the Fox viewers are also his electoral base, they basically got a, I guess the word is cuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I've been using that word a little bit recently to, you know, to, to tell some people in the alt-right movement that they've been cucked by Donald Trump's... Uh, you know potential cabinet appointments um but totally totally <laughs> but there's an interesting other aspect to this and i i don't know how you feel about it i still don't know how i feel about it but megan kelly um waited until after the election to release her book i mean it was already scheduled to be released after the election and i have a feeling she thought that hillary clinton had it in the bag too because she made some pretty startling accusations against Donald Trump. Uh, some of it's more on, in the innuendo territory, hinting at things. But essentially, if you read between the lines of some of the things she says about Trump in her book, she um, suspects that she was poisoned. She kind of alludes to being <laughs> poisoned or given something in her coffee to make her get sick on the morning of the first debate. And then she also suggests that Trump was being leaked questions in advance or he knew what the first question was going to be in that first debate that you have an issue with women and you need to like answer for that. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think Megyn Kelly is credible? No. I don't think Megyn Kelly is credible, period. But um, now in terms of her book, I really wonder if there wasn't some scrambling. I don't know. See, I would love to know the timeline because you know, there's lots of lots of times people, particularly with media books, they'll have a, like a last second revision to something. They'll talk to somebody and say, "Oh, please don't tell say that in the book." Or so I really wonder what the timeline is on that. But no, I don't buy most of what she says. I mean, she's very much a careerist. I mean, her earlier life. I mean, I think she got a a charge out of being kind of a. She, there's a lot of people who don't like her and don't like Fox News who are happy to rally to her defense because they hated Donald Trump more. Of course, And yeah. now that the election is over and Fox is going to go back to doing that, 
I think you're going to find a lot of those people aren't going to be there for her. And they shouldn't be, because she's she's a total hack. So I just think she's not a sympathetic figure. Now, <laughs> was she poisoned? <laughs> or, <laughs> I don't think so. Was it possible that Donald Trump got leaked by friendlies within Fox News? I mean, that's the other thing. It's not like, I mean, we say Fox News was out to get him. I think, uh, I think the leadership had orders, probably from Murdoch himself or someone else, or the RNC, which they're very much attached to, to get him because they were afraid, of, ironically, of Trump taking over and then destroying the Republican Party. He ended up actually destroying the Democratic Party, which is now is essentially a municipal party. But <laughs> they were afraid of him. And so I wonder if, if there weren't also people within Fox News who liked Trump and did give him questions in advance or gave him heads-ups on what Roger Ailes was planning to do for Murdoch. or what. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he had moles within Fox News that even though the leadership had had, you know, Shoot to kill orders that there weren't some friendlies giving him in for that sounds plausible to me. But the idea that Megyn Kelly, I mean, Megyn Kelly, she's she was not she's not she doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the only, that's what got proved during this election is that a lot of these talking head anchors and their little petty grievances and their little like passive aggressive attacks, they don't actually matter if you just keep calling bullshit on them because they're just anchors and they don't have any real power. <laughs> Yeah, that's the, that's exactly. what Trump proved. <laughs> yeah, and and I think I thought it was amusing when she was sparring with Trump and and being one of the only Fox News people to really, you know, try to aggressively go after him. That liberals and and people on the left started to sort of see her as this heroic figure that was challenging, um, you know, a, a Trump or whatever. Um, but actually, now that Trump is president elect uh she's back i mean it, you can very clearly see that she is a careerist hack just based on what her slant is now that he's won right it's yeah. back to comparing videos of mike pence being lectured to about hamilton um with ben carson talking about something at a prayer breakfast and comparing the biases and and it, i i don't even know if i'm making sense but basically it's just more partisan crap yeah yeah um you know, very typical of anything Fox News did before. So I'd like to think that that rift or whatever happened at Fox News because of Trump's rise will continue to exist there. But I have a feeling we're going to see the it being patched up very quickly to all sort of the network itself will become much more lockstep once again. Um, and that's my theory, at least. I don't know. But, it, but then again, one of the things we talked about on our last podcast about this was if Trump wins, will we see the press presenting itself as this, you know, now we're going to be adversarial again and very aggressive towards the sitting president. Um, but then we, you know, we sort of agreed that if they did that, it would be phony. Um, I'm just wondering, are you... <laughs> and welcome to the phoniness. <laughs> yeah. What are, you, what are you seeing in that department so far, just based on... Do you think the reactions to the tweets falls in that category, or or are you seeing other things? Um, just curious. I mean, <laughs> the 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 amount of virtue signaling, which is a great term for this, where people go out and say something to impress other people within their social group, not because they sincerely believe it. You know, it's been so interesting to watch this game. Because, you know, Washington, particularly in Washington press and the lobbyists and the rest of the people, they have no real core. They congeal around power. And they and that's, 
And that's kind of what they do. They don't really believe in anything except their own aggrandizement and their own personal ambitions. So you've seen, like, some people already just totally give up and be like, all right, if he's a president, we, whatever, I want access, and go around. And then they've seen other people in the more partisan media who have a partisan audience, right? Huffington Post is a great example of this. Basically take this, you know, <laughs> you can hear chariots of fire theme music behind their <laughs> tweets. <laughs> I'll stand up to this man. I will never surrender. <laughs> you know, the president shouldn't have... The greatest part is they start questioning the powers the Obama administration has <laughs> on, you know, drone assassinations. I mean, these people were silent or, or didn't really care for, you know, what, five years, six years, seven years when Obama started taking new powers. And now suddenly, oh, President Trump will have them. It's, and then it shifts to this is outrageous for any president to have them. So <laughs> the what it's it's like this total political amnesia and virtue signaling, and it's just insufferable. But it is on one on one hand hilarious because you get to see both. You get really to see the fragmented media in action. So there's people who need access to the new White House. They're already they're already sort of blowing him kisses and. Well, you know, he's the president. We got to give him a chance. <laughs> you know, yeah. People, people who are saying that this is like going to be a nuclear winter, <laughs> only like a, few, a month ago, are oh, we got to give him a chance. And then the other people who are the partisan media people who, you know, didn't really care about the policies that Obama was doing. Now suddenly that power is catastrophic in the hands of Donald Trump. But it was, I guess, okay when Obama was clearly abusing it. So it's it's it, the phoniness is is hitting <laughs> new levels. That's kind of funny. Yeah, I I think it might have been Michael Tracy or someone else who who can't you know who they they framed it this way that if Trump really is you know this new fascism if he really is going to bring fascism then why aren't all these people who were saying that going out and confronting his presidency as if he were a fascist dictator. And that, and that presents an interesting dilemma because so many regular people, not even people necessarily plugged into politics, and this is what bothers me. And I have a lot of friends on Facebook and, and people that I saw riled up in a similar way where they literally thought Trump was going to be the end of the world, as, as you said, nuclear winter. Even Obama started to get sucked into saying things like, we shouldn't trust this guy to have the nuclear codes towards the end of Hillary's campaign. Now, when you wind up and rile regular people up to that extent, and then after Trump wins, say everything's fine, you know, <laughs> Obama, the calmest fucking uh, reaction to Trump winning I've I've seen of most people yet, um, not not a a look of worry or concern, um, you know, not a drop of sweat on his brow. He was just telling everybody to relax. And, and two weeks earlier, warning people that this, I mean, alluding to something like nuclear winter. Now, psychologically, how do you draw that back? What do you, what do people do with that, those feelings now? Because if the, if part of the media is telling everybody to relax, um, I, 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 that, that's the part that I, I, I don't understand how society is going to grapple with that because regular people aren't going to go out there and start fighting the Trump presidency as if it's the you know second coming of adolf hitler but that that also hasn't been that emotion hasn't gone away either 
It hasn't been drawn back. It hasn't stopped. So where do people? What do people do with that? Or what? Are, what, what yeah. What, what's interesting is I, I think what for those of us who have been in campaigns and or covered just even covered it, you don't even have to have been inside one. You have to understand that the people who like the Hillary Clinton campaign and the partisan media and including the quote unquote objective media, all these people are extremely cynical, extremely cynical. So they never believed that shit when they were saying it. They never believed it. Oh, he's going to start a nuclear war. They never believed it. Now, what is the so they were just trying to manipulate the public and to turn people up, turn it up to 11 because they thought that would get people out to vote. Now, they don't really believe it, so the reason Obama's not, you know, having a panic attack when he's having his meeting with Trump is because he didn't really believe it. He was just, that was the line. Remember, there was a, there was a strategic choice. How do we attack Trump? And there was two options given to the Clinton campaign. They had, they, they, you know, on policies or to talk about, quote-unquote, temperament. And so she chose, because she this was her decision, according to an article I read, I think, at the New York Times, she chose temperament. And so when you talk about temperament, you've got to really play it up. Like, this guy is uncontrollable. He doesn't know who he is. He's, he has these rage-a-thons. He's completely unhinged. You can set him off with a tweet, quote-unquote. And then she tried to kind of demonstrate temperament by continually baiting him throughout the campaign, right? That was the con. Right, the, the Muslim father who went up there, and of course Trump took the bait and attacked. That was um, Miss uh, the, the the pageant queen, right, Muchada. You know, look, uh, look, I'm, I'm talking about this. Oh, he can't help himself. He's attacking her again. Campaign's over. Oh, here's him in this Access Hollywood tape. Oh, grab her pussy. Ha ha. No temperament. He has no self control. So the quite did the Clinton campaign ever believe this shit when I was saying no? They never believed it. They thought well, he's had the same self control as anybody else. They know each other. I mean, she went to his wedding. They know each other. <laughs> She's, he's been a donor of, of her and her husband's for years. So now, that's so the elite, if you like, within the media and the po political establishment are extremely cynical. They don't believe anything they say. The question is, for the public, because the people out there, the voters, are not as cynical, at least, as them. And it's kind of interesting to watch the American people get more and more cynical. Because the more cynical they get, the less they trust institutions. And the less they trust institutions, the harder it is to gaslight them. <laughs> so I think the effect of this will be, one, people will get extremely demoralized about democracy. And two, people will get extremely cynical about the media and politicians. So it's kind of an, I think it's just going to make the current dynamic worse. And I think there probably is going to be some people who are going to get so triggered by this thing, they're probably going to do something really stupid that will ruin their lives because they really think that Hitler came to power. I mean, I think that's what's going to happen, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I I have a hard time arguing with that, and I, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm no uh, Trump supporter by any means, but I do think that energy, uh, the, those feelings are going to have to go somewhere, um, and you know, maybe right now they're going into some of the street Trump uh, anti-Trump protests. Um, and that might be the healthiest way to channel, you know, some of that extreme worry and rage. But what if it goes beyond that? Um, and we have sort of another, you know, 1970s um, weatherman style, you know, thing happening. I mean, I, I 
you know, and I, I don't want to in any way be disparaging, you know, sort of more radical left movements, but we there is a history of um, the sort of more extreme factions, uh, you know, coming out to 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 take control and sort of shift things during during you know overwhelming fear like this. Um, but we're we're talking, yeah, but, that's, but that's the point, and just to go right on that point, which is very key. You're going to see those two reactions. One, you're going to see people get entirely cynical, entirely tune out, which is bad for the Democrats, by the way, because they rely on high turnout elections. The second part is you're going to see, so there's some people are going to say it's pointless, it's hopeless. They're just going to get totally demoralized, and they're not going to believe in the system at all. Other groups of people are going to be so nihilistic, they're going to engage in probably terrorism, they're going to engage in all sorts of things. Both of those attitudes will will further empower the right wing. Because for people to just give up, the right wing will win because they'll have no opposition. If people do some terrible things like bombings the weatherman did or whatever, they will use that as a pretext to crack down on the remaining dissidents. So it completely plays into their hand. This is one of the reasons why it's so dangerous for a left leaning at least in the Democratic Party political organization to engage in right-wing fear tactics because it only there's no way to really win it's their vocabulary it's their tool they always win when you turn up the fear such a good they, point it's a reactionary politics so when they started playing this Putin game there's a paranoia there's a you know it's a Russian underneath your bed you know it, and, and and Trump is so dangerous it's a dangerous world you need someone with you need a strong hand to guide you like that is a right-wing reactionary argument and the more you play that, it, it totally demoralizes your own people, and it plays into their hands. So I think, and plus, you have to look, I think what has to be noted here, Robbie, is the Republican Party now controls the Senate with 51 votes. They have a majority. They can get rid of the filibuster. They control the House. They control the White House. They control 33 state legislatures. They are in complete control of this country's political system federal and state level. The only places Democrats still have power is on the municipal level, which is to say the big cities. So you are now dealing with a very right-wing government and a very right-wing political system, and if people tune out, it's, they're just going to run through their agenda, which is a very unfortunate agenda for most people. And if they go in and engage in the kind of nihilistic terrorism that often accompanies things like this, that's just going to further empower them as well. So it, it's, it's, a totally, it's a total trap. And I think you have to look at it and think, if this continues, it's really bad for the left overall. And it's certainly bad for, <laughs> it's certainly bad for people who were hoping for change in solutions because now you have a, a demoralized and or demoralized slash furious, rageful, um, with no way to channel it left. And I think that's bad news going forward. I don't think there's any upside to that. So I think total catastrophe <laughs> from a certain perspective on this election. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I see a similar possibility happening on the Trump side as well, but perhaps not as, um, the, this, it's not as greased and ready to go as the, as the left is for this type of, um, you know, I guess going off the rails behavior. But if Trump, betrays his supporters and voters which it seems like he's inevitably going to do um will we see a similar outrage or just outrage or disillusionment 
on the right because the Tea Party and even the alt-right to some extent, well, not to some extent, to a large extent, is a reaction to the disillusionment with this, the establishment Republican Party. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, and we could talk about things like the, the, cons- the conspiracy dog whistling and how the Trump campaign used a lot of Clinton conspiracy lore, some of it true, some of it not, to, you know, to help his campaign. Where do you see that going? Do you think that, you know, and especially a lot of some of the more conspiracy-minded people, um, they're very pro-Trump right now. What happens when they become anti-Trump? You know, if if Trump doesn't arrest Hillary Clinton, for example, or doesn't prosecute her, um, that's already starting to, you know, anger people a lot. So I'm just curious what you think about that side of it. Well, I think well, that's an okay. There's different parts of that that are interesting. So one is, you know, is Trump going to totally betray his entire election mandate? I'm not so sure. I think he's going to try to play ball with the establishment a little bit, but I think on things like immigration, he's not going to play ball. I think he's going to go hard, and he's actually got a right wing Congress that mostly wants to go alongside with him. I think the stuff that he might sell out on. Is particularly, he said he wasn't going to cut Social Security and Medicare. Now, the Republicans in Congress have been dying to do that for generations, and they see this as their chance. So he's going to have a lot of opposition, and he might cut, cut some kind of deal. Particularly right now, we're talking about what he's going to do with Medicare and Paul Ryan, who's, you know, by all standards, a more moderate Republican than Ted Cruz, than Donald Trump, very much RNC, old establishment. So you have that factor. Now, on the other st- side, are people who are feel betrayed by Donald Trump <laughs> going to go back <laughs> to, like, schoolhouse rock politics? <laughs> no. <laughs> They've already been energized and radicalized. They're just going to go further and further to the right. They're going to get further and further irritated and angered, but they're not. the right doesn't respond by turning tuning out. The right responds by rebelling, and it's rebelling. And it's interesting, when I listened to what we talked about in March, we said there were two rebellions, right? One was in the Democratic Party, and the rebels lost. That was the Bernie Sanders insurgency. The other rebellion was in the Republican Party. That was Donald Trump, and Trump won. And then Trump won the general election. So on some level, he might not betray them completely, but even if they feel betrayed, they're not going to go back to the mainstream conservatives because – those people, they already were disillusioned with them. I mean, you see the trend, right? They're disillusioned with the mainstream conservatives. They go to the Tea Party. They're disillusioned with the Tea Party. They go to Trump. They're going farther right each time because that's where the people who are uncompromising are, and they want to go with uncompromising people. So I think, I don't think they go back to mainstream politics. I think they just get more and more, I would say, probably sectarian, <laughs> which <laughs> to put it to put a term on it that's not uh, altogether uh, comforting, but I think it's I think it's going to get uglier and uglier. I don't think it's going to suddenly they're going to say, oh geez, we got led astray by this demagogue. And plus, there's going to be people who probably, if Trump betrays them, going to say some you know alien influence, maybe literally, really <laughs> some you know foreign influence, you know got their got their whispered in Trump's ear and made him give up on the people. And it's not Trump's fault. It's never Trump's fault. Remember, that these are the people who never blamed Trump for anything he did. So they're probably going to blame a foreign alien influence 
or some corrupting influence before they blame him. So I think it's just a terrible, it's going to be a very ugly trip for the Trump supporters if they feel they've been betrayed. I think it's just going to get push them further to the right. Well, that's not a it's not a pleasant thing to think about of how either of these things could evolve. If we're looking at you know if either of these things happen with the left or the right, um, it, it is a very ugly potential future for politics, um, because just like you were saying about the left or the Democratic Party engaging in sort of this more hysterical right-wing rhetoric, which is more traditionally known um, from, you know, comes from the right-wing, like talking... It's a neoconservative. It was a neoconservative campaign. Yeah. So all that stuff, it has to go somewhere. And I guess that just goes back to my original point of of that um, the emotions are going to keep building. Um, And it does really worry me. And I'm not suggesting civil war or anything that extreme but you you use the word sectarian earlier um i feel like we're setting ourselves up for something much worse than anything we've even seen in the last century in terms of civil unrest but maybe that's maybe that's being too alarmist i don't know it it seems it does seem to be a very dangerous future ahead of us and not even just from our government which is now one of the most Republican governments we've had since I don't know when. I mean, it's how long? Ever. Ever. So, <laughs> there you go. Um, combined with the fact that people's mentalities will keep drifting in these more extreme directions, um, it's very scary to think about. And I also, it, it also concerns me um, that, and not not that people should go back to believing in mainstream Republicans or mainstream Democrats after this delusion disillusionment, but just like that, um, now people, especially Trump supporters, think that the entire mainstream media is a globalist cabal of, of liars and propagandists. And they're not entirely wrong <laughs> about that assertion. So, you have this dilemma now where where are they going to go when Trump is president for their trustworthy information in their media? Because it seems like Trump has done a very good job of making people only look to sort of the alternative right-wing media. Um, Breitbart probably being the most mainstream of that sector. So, now that Breitbart is part of the establishment, is he going to be able to keep using the media as a foil or as a scapegoat for getting away with lying? Like, if, if the New York Times does an investigative piece on him, of course, he'll be able to say New York Times are liars. I've told you this, you know, before. Here, you know, they're, they're lying. They're a terrible paper, whatever. Um, but I, I'm just wondering how, where is that going to go? Because that, it seems like it might be on a parallel track to what you're talking about with um, just the trust in politicians, just the trust in media. Uh, where, because I mean, that actually might be even a more complex uh, thing now that Breitbart is is part of the establishment. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think actually it's interesting is that Breitbart is kind of a, a, a gateway to the alt-right, which, I mean, a lot of people can say that, and Trump is, Trump is probably not, in my opinion, alt-right. I actually don't even think he's te- really racist per se. I, I think he's really a, an egomaniac for the most part, and you know, if people love him, he'll love them back. 
<laughs> which is, you know, which is in a way kind of egalitarian in a sense, <laughs> a very <laughs> limited sense, a very narcissistic sense. But the people who are pulling the strings or are really positioning themselves are the alt-right, and their and their position is crystal clear, and I think it's one that's going to get a lot more um, sympathy, which is that they want a, they are, you know, white nationalists, they want separatism, if not, if not to take over the whole country, then to have their own little piece of it, like a sort of, you know, ethno-state, I think um, one of the alt-right leaders talks about. And this is all, see, this is like unthinkable 10 years ago, but now I think they're playing on a bunch of different factors. One, the political, the lack of trust in the media, the lack of trust in the government, and also the, sh the shifting demographics, which are creating a lot of tension between different groups. And the alt-right has been great at not trying to diminish the tensions, but increase, amplify the tensions. And they love these videos where, you know, Trump supporters, white Trump supporters are getting attacked by uh, non-whites and trying to make it, like, there was a guy got in a fight with, he got carjacked in, I believe it was um, Chicago. And th at one point they said something about Trump, the, these, these black youths that were beating up this older white gentleman. And, like, that was, like, perfect. We'll use that frame and they'll just jam it through. And you'll even see people who aren't, in theory, in the alt-right, like... Um, uh, uh, Paul Watson, Prison Planet, whatever his name is, you know, talk about this kind of war on whites rhetoric and this kind of tribalism or sectarianism, however you want to frame it. They have a they have a very firm position to stand on if their goal is to simply rip the country apart and carve out a piece for themselves, and that's their agenda, and they're pretty open about that agenda. They don't really hide it. So as the media gets more fragmented and fewer fewer people trust the mainstream media, they have an alternative explanation that has caught fire. And they're having a, you know, and people dismiss this conference that just happened in D.C. where, you know, Richard Spencer and, and some people threw the <laughs> Zeke Heil, which is, you know, <laughs> crazy on a number of levels. But, you know, they said, oh, it's only 200 people. I think the alt-right played a very big role in this election. And you know who else thinks so? Hillary Clinton, who dedicated an entire major piece of her communications, an entire major speech, to the alt-right. So the alt-right is playing their own game. And I think Trump, wittingly or unwittingly, probably unwittingly, is playing into it with his, talk, with his divisive talk. And the left is playing into it, to some degree, by continually amplifying... You know the idea that like someone, you know, the idea that Hitler won the election. Well, first of all, that's not true. But if you believe that, if you really believe that, then didn't the alt right win the election? Right. I mean, you have to sort of follow the logic that both sides on the left and the right are pulling the country apart. So that's how I see the media playing out in the Trump land. It's Breitbart will take a more mainstream nationalistic line, and then you'll have the people on the periphery taking this sort of far right white nationalist line, and I don't think they're going anywhere. I think they're here to stay, partly because just the demographics are changing in the country. It's causing a lot of anxiety. Um, I think by 2050 is a current, or 2040, 2050, whites will not be a, the majority in the country. I think that's causing a lot of anxiety, particularly in places that aren't used to diversity. Right? That's a big part they keep talking about all the time, that all these immigrants are coming to the, the, the heartland, quote-unquote. So that's just, I think, in, on that, that pathology, that track... 
is is disaster. I don't think there's any way, to, and I don't think there's any way to that I can think of to get these people to back off and just you know <laughs> hold hands and say you know it's maybe it's not a bad thing if you live with people who don't look exactly like you. I don't know what to do with them. I think they're just here to stay. The question is how big their numbers grow, and if you're looking at what just happened this election, that's not a good sign. So uh, as far as the Trump media, the alt right is going to play a big role. Sadly. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, so there's a, there's a few things that come to mind. So the alt-right, um, I think you're right, that they have, they have helped Donald Trump get elected for sure. And Donald Trump is, um, I think he's mostly been using them. And he's never really even, you know, promoted the alt-right necessarily. He's retweeted, you know, some alt-right figures, um, I'm sure. But he hasn't really directly you know, associated himself with it. I think he knows how powerful it was um, to help him get elected. I, I mean, there's, you know, if you have someone like Peter Thiel involved in, you know, helping you get elected, I mean, even just the data you can gather from uh, Palantir, his company right. alone, it probably gave incredible um, uh, predictive metrics on what the alt-right, you know, was going to do for his campaign. But makes me think of Drudge, um, Matt Drudge from Drudge Report, because I feel like in a lot of ways, he was really the master brainchild of a lot of what has become sort of the alternative media culture, especially the right-wing media culture, obviously. And it is just really surreal to think that sort of what sprang from him is now going to be in control of the White House, um, <laughs> like a direct lineage from Matt direct, Drudge. Yeah. And that's just such a weird thing to think about. I mean, the Alex Jones component and the fact that Trump is, you know, friendly with Infowars and he personally calls Alex Jones to thank him after the election, that's weird enough. But I don't know. I think the Drudge thing is almost weirder because, I mean, he helped get Bill Clinton impeached. I mean, he he broke the story. I think, is, is that correct? That he broke the Monica Lewinsky story before anyone else? And that's sort of how... Yeah, that, that made the Drudge Report is the Drudge Report broke the Lewinsky story and then kind of forced the media to cover it because they couldn't ignore something so sensational. But, I mean, you can talk about Alex Jones, but you have to remember, who is Andrew Breitbart? Andrew Breitbart's entire career is due to Matt Drudge. Exactly, his yeah. Entire, his entire first web career where he was just basically almost like redoing AP copy stories where there wasn't any content... Then he created the Breitbart sites, big Hollywood, big government, all the rest of it. That was all Drudge directed all that traffic to him. So Matt Drudge is actually, in sort of a 10-year campaign, completely obliterated all these people who really, in fairness, and, and one of the few supporters Matt Drudge had, by the way, in the 90s, was, was Brian Lamb of C-SPAN, who was always very gracious to Matt Drudge. I don't know why. Interesting. But, but he respected him, I guess, and he would always sort of you know, give him his due. And, you know, Matt Drudge came to Washington, D.C. after the, he broke these Lewinsky stories and, you know, all this happened. And there's a great video of it. And he went to the, came to the National Press Club. And the National Press Club did everything they could to humiliate him and ask these incredibly passive-aggressive questions. And it was like this big humiliation, which is funny because something like that happened to Trump in 2012 when Obama humiliated him at the, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And, you know, Donald Trump got decided that, that night, reportedly, that he was going to run for president because 
because Obama humiliated him. Well, I don't know what Mad Drudge thought to himself after he got humiliated at the National Press Club, but if it was, I'm going to work my heart and soul out to destroy these people, <laughs> mission accomplished. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm surprised we haven't really heard from him. I mean, but he's not... He's he's almost like a Howard Hughes esque figure at this point, where I don't even think he's appeared on camera for at least five years or so. But I would be really interested to hear him gloat a little bit about this. I mean, he would have to. I mean, because he did. <laughs> he he now has a power in the White House. I mean, I would argue that's actually just taken place. You know, maybe he's not meeting with the with the transition team, but I mean. You gotta, you know, if if you don't think that he has direct influence over Bannon in some way, you would have to be crazy or just not looking at how this whole thing evolved. Um, and no, they still they still go to him. I mean, he sets. He is literally. There used to be this term. Uh, I think Noam Chomsky talked about the New York Times used to call it the quote agenda setting media, which was the idea that yes, they can claim their objective. But what they choose to say is important or unimportant affects the rest of the media ecosystem. Mad Drudge is the agenda-setting media for the right wing. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, how close did Trump ever get to Matt Drudge? Because there are some interesting things that Trump has done over his career, even before he got involved in politics. I mean, he's always kind of, in a way, always been hinting that he wants to run for president. I mean, even back as far as the early 80s maybe even 88 um, yeah so i mean i even saw an appearance of, of him on uh, david letterman it was got had to have been from the early 80s where he's dropping hints about someday running for president so and i mean it just seems like that always was sort of part of his public persona or just getting into public office hinting about it but there was this weird uh story that my wife told me about uh very recently that i was just kind of like wow, that's really interesting insight into not only Trump's egomaniacal personality, but his ability to manipulate the media and also maybe evidence that he has experience with planting things in tabloids, having media fixers doing things for him um, in the 80s uh, and, and just all throughout his career. And I'll just read really quickly from this. Um, it was in the Huffington Post, but it's... Uh, it's actress Selma Hayek uh, talked about an experience she had uh, when Donald Trump tried to date her um, in the 90s. Have you heard anything about this? No, not this one. Okay. So, I'm, I'm, I'm just reading directly from this Huffington Post story. It says, During an appearance on the L Show Dal Mandro radio show on Friday, Selma Hayek told the host that she believed all the women who've accused Republican nominee Donald Trump of sexual assault before sharing her own experience with Trump. She says, when I met that man, I had a boyfriend and he tried to become his friend to get my home telephone number. He got my number and he would call me to invite me out. When I told him I wouldn't go out with him, even if I didn't have a boyfriend, he called. Well, obviously he, he wouldn't say he called, but someone told the National Enquirer, the actress said, and then the article goes on to say, allegedly Trump told the outlet they, they're, they're suspecting that Trump himself made the call. Because remember, there was all that weird stuff about Trump using a different character. Yeah, to fake talk press to. secretary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they don't say that in this article, but it, you know, I'm thinking reading between the lines, it could have been that fake character, um, told the outlet that it was in fact he who wouldn't go out with Hayek. <laughs> and the reason why he wouldn't date her 
It said that he wouldn't go out with me because I was too short, Hayek said. Despite his unfortunate attempts to woo the actress, an ill-fated attempt to spread a ridiculous lie, Trump still continued to call Hayek. This is the most interesting part, I think. <laughs> Hayek says, later he called me and left a message. Can you believe this? Who would say this? I don't want people to think this about you. He thought that I would try to go out with him so people wouldn't think that's why he wouldn't go out with me. So... Apparently, Trump planted a story in a tabloid to preemptively humiliate Salma Hayek for rejecting him, his, his uh, offers to you know, go on a date, um, by saying that she was too short and that saying sh he didn't want to date her before she had even told anyone about this incident. <laughs> and then later tried to tell, like, basically hint that he would clean this story up in the press <laughs> if she would date him, acting like he's not the one who spread the story. So, I just thought that was fascinating and kind of i mean not not something matt drudge would do but it displays a similar <laughs> machiavellian at least knowledge of how to manipulate the press even if it's on a small level like that i don't know what is you, your reaction to that <laughs> well i mean there's a key there's a key part of trump's history that i think never got a lot of mainstream press play and that was that his mentor was a guy named roy cohen now, if you know who Roy Cohen was, he was the he was the power or the the uh, the puppet master of Joe McCarthy, Senator Joe McCarthy. No shit. No, I didn't. And, I didn't know any of this. Oh yeah. Now Roy Cohen, um, he ran uh, the McCarthyite hearings. He you know got people screwed over in Hollywood. He you know he basically went on this. He's a very talented lawyer. He also tried the Rosenbergs and got them executed. For espionage, and he ran McCarthy, and then McCarthy self-destructed. And in fact, Roy Cohen was one of the reasons that you know that famous line, "At long last, sir, do you have no decency?" came during a hearing with Joe McCarthy and uh, someone representing someone at the Defense Department, I believe, or a lawyer rather, who had been who McCarthy called a communist. Roy Cohen was in the room. He had had a banter back and forth. And part of the thing that had occurred that apparently set McCarthy off is the lawyer that was that McCarthy was attacking had made a oblique reference to Roy Cohen being a homosexual in the hearing. Jesus. And he called him a fairy. He, or he said some fairy did it. And it was clear to everybody in the room that he was talking about. So Roy Cohen has but he's a bruiser. When he got when he was you know kind of fell out of politics after the McCarthy you know, after Joe McCarthy self destructed. He went to New York and represented a lot of shady people, including the mob, the mafia. And some of those people, and if you know anything about the Italian mafia in New York, you know they're very involved in the construction business. They're big involved in this construction business. And one of the people that Roy Cohen mentored was a young up-and-comer guy coming from uh, coming to the Manhattan to build. His name was Donald Trump, and he was Donald Trump's lawyer. And Cohen taught him how to deal with the press, which was counterpunch. And so Trump, if he when he learned his you know conniving ways, he learned a lot of that from Roy Cohen, who had the New York media tabloids and everybody else. Roy Cohen also helped represent Trump in this major uh, racial discrimination lawsuit against him and his father for discriminating against black tenants. And Roy Cohen is who told Donald Trump. Never apologize, never admit defeat, 
counterpunch, and then declare victory. And so, you know, what Trump did when he got sued, him and his father, for this racial discrimination is, is he, he sued the government back. And then after he settled, he said he won, even though he didn't. And Cohen helped him become this media star. He was a big part of that. So when people say Trump doesn't, you know, it's all Trump is just some, you know, blowhard who doesn't understand the strategies, hell no, his mentor was one of the most brutal guys in American political history and a major scene in the New York legal and uh, media scene, I guess you should say. So, I mean, he, Roy Cohen was his mentor. You don't become, you know, that's that's Roy Cohen with the story you just described. That's very Roy Cohen, Roger Stone, who are contemporaries. Um, and, of course, later when Roy Cohen uh, died of AIDS, um, you know, Donald Trump completely pretended like they'd never met. <laughs> and that, and, but... Uh, Previous to wow. that, they were very they were very close. So uh, Roy Cohen was a major mentor of Donald Trump, and Roy Cohen was a master of manipulation and playing the system, and you know just brutal. So you have to know that about Donald Trump to know to understand that yeah he's absolutely uh, a killer to quote him. So yeah, I, Donald Trump I, that story sounds very legit based on his mentorship. That's fascinating. I didn't know any of that um, that history. Uh, so, I guess we'll just have to wait and see how this how that ability of his plays out when he's president. Because I don't think we've had a pres. I mean, it's just it's going to be strange, I guess, to see how he'll still be able to play the outsider underdog role as president of the United States as someone who's constantly counterpunching against the media and acting like he's being unfairly attacked because that seems to be key to his, his style. Um, that that's a key to his sort of strategy, I guess, for, for dealing with the press. Um, so I'm, I'm just very curious what that's going to be like. I, I can't even imagine it, but, um, well, previously it was supposed to be that kind of conduct. Because he he very much you know Nixon ran a similar campaign uh, as Roger Stone will tell you uh, against the press he ran it basically against the press in '68 and really a lot in '72 and the American people liked the press a lot better than and still bought into it but it's hard to do that when you're in the office but I have a feeling you know Trump has not agreed to relinquish his Twitter account I, I have a feeling this is like the permanent campaign like he's never going to stop he's never going to become president and the dignity of the office is going to stop him from being a counterpuncher or, or going out there and anytime he gets into trouble blaming the press for it. I think I think we're in for at least four years of that, to be honest. I don't think he's going to... I think for him, he's Donald Trump whether he's president or not. I really... <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, that. I guess that's, that's also going to be really weird to see it just stain like that. Um, for his presidency, I mean, um, either either way will be strange if he has a different strategy or not. Um, so, yeah, that's yeah, it's just going to be fascinating. Um, uh, and you said something else about we were talking about Roy Cohn earlier. Um, you mentioned Joe McCarthy. Shoot, what, what was I going to ask you about? Um, oh, yeah, the Central Park Five. Did we talk about that? On the last, no. <laughs> on the last podcast, what do you what do you know about his 
media involvement in that? Because that happened before, I think that happened, when was that, in the mid-90s, or was that more recently? 80s. That was, oh, oh, maybe, uh, well, no, no, actually, you might be right, it might be 90s. But Donald Trump took a, it was one of the few times he called a press conference, and he said that the, the men, these young black guys who had done this, had to be executed, because they're animals. And then the people in the press said, the fuck? Well, geez, you're really, you're really uh, demeaning. You know, you're, it's like you hate these guys. Basically, th- this is when they were tiptoeing around the racial rhetoric. And, and Donald Trump said, I do hate them. <laughs> I think they should be killed. <laughs> and now what we know Holy today, shit. and this is, this is kind of key, by the way. What we know today is that these guys were innocent. The five or however many young black men who were accused had actually not committed the crime. Someone else has now confessed to it, and Donald Trump never apologized. He held a conference and basically called them, said they were animals, they needed to be executed. Yes, I hate them. I hate anyone who would do this. How dare these animals come to our city and treat women like this? And he went on, a, he, he held a press conference. Remember, he has no office. There's <laughs> no point to this press conference. He's not the mayor. He's not the district attorney. There's no reason for him to hold this press conference. He's just sort of doing it as a quote-unquote concerned citizen. And it was a good issue for him because it made him known to a lot of people who really, when this thing happened, let their racial animosities bubble up to the surface. And and there was a clear like overtone to the, the Central Park Five, I believe it was, that, you know, how dare these black men rape a white woman. And Trump really played on that to a point where even people at the time who who didn't want to criticize him too much because he's just some businessman were saying like this has a lot of racial overtones and the kind of hatred <laughs> I mean the press is it seems like you hate them like you hate them for a reason he's like yeah I hate them so <laughs> it, so he played a big role in that in terms of getting publicity always got publicity there was no such thing as bad publicity it's funny when he was going through his divorce which was this major Divorce with um, the Ivana Trump, right? His, his daughter is Ivanka. It was Ivana Trump. Apparently, what people said who were close to him when this was happening is he's in the tabloids every day for this this divorce, which should be embarrassing. But what they t- said is he loved it. He looked at the papers every. T- I'm in the pa- newspaper now. It's, he's in the newspaper for having a terrible, brutal divorce, but he apparently didn't really care that that it would, the the coverage would be considered negative. He was just happy to get coverage. So, you know, he's just a, he, that's a very Roy, Roy Cohen like, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Just get your name out there. And anybody who attacks you, attack him first. So, uh, the Central Park Five was one of those incidents where he saw an opportunity to get publicity and was willing to play the most brutal. I mean, it, it echoes the Mexico, you know, Mexicans, they're rapists. I mean, it really echoes it. In fact, he might have been even channeling that. Who knows? When he was up there, you know, freestyling. So, yeah, the Central Park Five was another issue where he really took the lead and used some very, uh, I think today, I mean, you could call it racist, you could call it extremely charged, but yeah, he he made his he made his mark with that. And of course, these guys were all exonerated because they didn't commit this crime. And then he doesn't even want to talk about it. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. care. Yeah, I I was just curious about why. Um, I mean, if it was just for publicity, uh, I suppose I couldn't explain it. Um, but I don't know. There, there's just something odd about. 
I mean, maybe it was a trial balloon of, of some kind to see, um, you know, if he could change public opinion or something. I, I it, it just seems really odd. And, and then I guess the next thing he did that you could compare to that was when he came out and said, um, he's, I think he actually offered a bounty amount for proof that Obama's birth certificate or, or a copy of Obama's birth certificate or something, um, and in between that, I don't remember really. I don't remember hearing much of him doing anything like that, like staging his own press conference um, to dovetail into some ongoing issue. Uh, were there other things he did like that that you can remember? Yeah, yeah. No, he he periodically. I think what he saw was he looks for sort of openings, and the media will give you free publicity if you say you're you're, you're exploring running for president. It's a freebie. They'll they'll give it to you particularly if you're a star. So throughout the years, he has continually floated the idea that he would run for president. He's been doing it since 1988. And, and, and roughly the same issues is what's kind of interesting. Trade and, you know, before it was the Japanese that were stealing everything from us, which is a major trope of the 80s and somewhat true, I guess. And we're not stealing, but out-competing. And now it's China. But it used to, but he still, it's funny because sometimes he kind of, kind of see, he seems like he has a senior moment and rechannels 80s stuff. Like he keeps talking about Japan, and no one really is like worried about the Japanese car makers anymore. But he'll bring it up because it's like, oh, people care about that, right? So he did that in 1988. Every but every four years since 1988, he has floated his idea of running for president. Um, sometimes as a Democrat, sometimes as a Republican, he also flirted with being the nominee of the Reform Party, which uh, with Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan. I mean, he's 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 constantly done this, and it's it's looked like every time. This is, by the way, in defense. I hate to defend these people, but you know, like Lawrence O'Donnell and these other people on MSNBC were like, he's not really running. He's not really running, and they're saying that not because they're gaslighting or anything, but because they're looking at his track record, which is every four years, <laughs> like you know, like Groundhog Day or something. He just comes out and goes, "I might be running for president," and so they're like, "Oh, he's not going to actually do it," and. So, so he's done this continually. He's brought it, and he's looked for different issues. He usually hits trade. He usually hits nationalist issues. He hit immigration a few times before, but yeah, he's done it. He's floated it. Um, it's not clear. I mean, one of the, like I said, one of the explanations for why he actually did it was because Obama humiliated him at that White House correspondence dinner. Which I'm sure, if Obama could take something back, he'd take that back. <laughs> <laughs> but. But um, yeah, he he, flows, he he uses different issues. He'll 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 do stuff. Central Park Five was kind of it wasn't that he was using an issue to get publicity that was unique. It was the clear racial overtones he was willing to use to get publicity for the issue. So, but he does that all the time. Like he he'll, he'll grab an issue, and then the Obama Bertha thing was, you know, yeah, he did. He he offered bounties. He pay, said he he said he paid people to go to Kenya and to go to Hawaii. Uh, um, but I, I mean, it's really kind of sketchy on whether how much of that stuff actually happened. But yeah, he used that issue. I mean, he likes a good fringe issue that he thinks he can beat the table on. And Central Park Five was one, and so was the uh, birth certificate thing. <laughs> His explanation for it was so, he's like, I never heard of this guy before. How's he president? Which I guess is some kind of ego trip. Like you weren't in my orbit. How dare you take power? I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so he does this occasionally. It's, 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 it's a pattern. It fits a pattern, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I don't know if you've been paying any attention to the 
to this whole notion that he's a secret 9-11 truther is still going around <laughs> the internet um, because of one or two things that he actually said, um, you know, hinting that he knows the Saudis were behind 9-11 or something <laughs> like that and, and a Sean Hannity appearance and then talking about, you know, bombs being in the buildings, on, I think, on the day of 9-11. Um, and they... and But... <laughs> It, it I don't know. It's just it because it is a fringe issue. Um, it it almost seems like people are more likely to believe that. Well, of course Donald Trump would be a you know would be into this because he's in, he's into these other uh, fringe issues or, or things like that. And I don't know. I don't know why it seems like such a powerful narrative, but it goes along with um, you know. And we probably shouldn't talk about this for too long. Um, but uh, you know this whole PizzaGate. Um, thing uh, that's been happening and it seems like a, mo- a train that's going you know a thousand miles per hour down the track with no way of being stopped or slowed down and I've never really seen anything like it before but it really and I, and I hate to you know I like what WikiLeaks does I thought that the P- Podesta leaks were fantastic <laughs> um, but it does seem like this is some- somehow almost like the end result or this is the culmination of what was generated from those leaks. Now it's all being channeled into this um, pretty over-the-top conspiracy theory. I mean, what do you? What are your thoughts on it? Well, I guess we should say from the outset that you know Donald Trump. I haven't heard him actually lend this one credence. He has stumbled around. I'm not honestly sure if he's grabbing on to the 9/11 truth thing or he's actually genuinely misremembering stuff. Yeah. Like, like I, I actually, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think he's actually playing with that fire. I really don't think so, but he could be, but it's, it's, it'd be at such an esoteric level because I really think he's, he's misremembering seeing things on the news. I think he conflated the seeing Palestinians cheer on the news and the Israelis cheering Yeah, that was very weird. Yeah, I I did a whole podcast about that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think he conflated those two things. I don't think it was strategic. I think he's actually misremembering something. I agree. And he's taking it. He's taking the parts of it because it has an emotional power, and he's a very and that's his great speaking ability. The reason he can reach the right so much is a lot of the right stuff is about um, the right sort of mental framework. What that what really sets him off is these emotional appeals. That happens on the left too, but in the right, there's a, it's always an emotional appeal. Like, she was raped, they were killed, they killed and celebrated it, and you know, like that's kind of this very sort of Conan the Barbarian type of, you know, insults to honor. That's what really sets off the right. And so the idea that there were these Muslims cheering as other people, as these other good Americans were being killed, like that, I think he thinks that's very powerful. And then when he's thinking of the details, he's like. Yeah, they were celebrating in Jersey City, right? That's you know, I saw it on TV. I saw it. I saw it myself. <laughs> and it's like you didn't see it yourself. You saw it on TV, and you heard about this story about the dancing Israeli, and you're conflating the two. No, no, no. I saw it myself. It doesn't matter. The, the honor was destroyed. They were celebrating us being killed. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't see anything coming directly from him that you know convinced me that he was even dabbling in that. I think it was mostly coming via people like Alex Jones and, and Roger Stone, which may or may not have been, you know, proxies, or I mean, I, I'm sorry, Roger Stone specifically may have been, you know, just knowing which targets to hit on to get, yeah. you know, people to support Trump more in that movement or, or who knows. But 
Um, yeah, no, no. In that case, I think it's it was what Trump did that was impressed even the liberals who couldn't help but smile was when he started talking, when Jeb Bush kept saying, you know, you were safe under my brother. He said, 9-11, the Twin Towers came down under your brother's reign. That's yeah. not keeping us safe. <laughs> and it was like this total kill shot because they had really no response, and I think he just kind of kept rolling with it because it was a great... It kept bringing him back. I think talking about 9-11 helped him because anytime you made it very emotional, his supporters got rallied and the other people got um, a little um, shy. So, as you know, I think it was 9-11 is not a conspiracy theory for him. I think it's an emotional button to push with people. He did it to Jeb Bush. He did it to Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz said... Donald Trump has New York values, which is supposed to be a sort of subtle, you've had a bunch of different wives, we get married once out here in the heartland, and Donald Trump said, how dare you after 9-11? I mean, mean, he was so, so I think 9-11 was a weapon that he, it was weaponized by him, and I don't think it was really about, you know, using it as a truth type, although I don't think he did anything to dispel the idea that he would investigate the Saudis or anything like that, but it was, I think for him it was a great emotional issue. Um, and he has nothing to do with Pizzagate. Pizzagate is this crazy thing that I saw happen in real time and is still going on in the... I don't even want to say it's the alt-right. I mean, the alt-right's playing a part, but... There oh, it's got to be so beyond that. Uh, it's, 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 it, it, there's a, it, a sort of a sociological perspective on this. There are people who are in the alt-right who have a clear agenda. It's the white nationalist agenda for the most part. And sometimes them they are also friendly to conspiratorial thinking, which isn't surprising considering you know the Reichstag fire. Um, so they're into you know they're into conspiratorial thinking, a little bit. But and then there's this other group of people who really aren't white nationalists who are and I, I don't want to say the far right or, but there's people on the left who sometimes buy into it. But there is this sort of conspiratorial audience, a lot of them for Infowars, other places, and. They, for some reason, this this story has really. There's a crossover. I wish it, it's not like a Venn diagram between the alt right and the far right or the lunatic fringe. I don't know how you want to phrase it. Maybe it is the alt right is that catch all. I guess if you want to simplify it, because well, it used to be kind guy, of the patriot movement, as yeah. people called it, sort of, which was Alex Jones and the larger world surrounding it, like you know, people like Wayne Madsen and Jerome yeah. Corsi. And all those people then all, and then you have like more fringe people like Jim Mars and now even David Icke is sort of connected to that movement. Um, yeah, then, it's interesting. Alex Jones kind of, one of the most famous things he did, or at least one of the things that I knew him for was he condemned David Icke in this hilarious documentary. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then now apparently he's okay. I don't know. I don't, I can't follow all of it, but you have to understand it's, there's this, yes, there's the old fringe. These people have been around since at least the nineties, the Patriot movement, Right, you know, all these things were setups and false flags, and but there is a new element, which is this alt-right-ish type thing. Mike Cernovich is a great example, right? Mike Cernovich is the person who really pushed this originally, and he has a huge following, and he's a young guy, and he has none of the, I don't want to say baggage, or just connections of Alex Jones these other places, and he's and he's partnered with a lot of other people like the the. Of the younger uh, guy at Infowars, Prison Planet, at Prison Planet, I guess it's Paul Joseph Watson. Yeah, and and then there's this other people who are kind of fringier too, and, and so there's a new fringe. I think they're kind of included in the alt right. I don't think they really belong there, but there's there's a fringy right, 
And this all congealed around a real thing, which was the WikiLeaks. Yeah. And so I think how this would happen, how this got... How we got here is an interesting story because when WikiLeaks first happened, people on the left, the right, and the center reported on it. Mainstream outlets pointed on it, reported on it. People on the left, Shadowproof, did exhaustive stuff. We were looking through the entire archive all the day. I know Kevin did a bunch of stuff. I did a bunch of stories on it, mostly policy-driven. And just really quickly, there was so much stuff coming out that it's really, to this day, there's no way most journalists have even had a chance to look through all of it yet. I mean, there's it's all key. It's all keyword searches. Yeah, there's, you know, we're finding, there's, you're going to be people are going to be finding stuff for years in the amount of yeah. information that was done. But sorry, it's like continue. cable. It's like it's like Cablegate. You're yeah. finding stuff now that you didn't even know was relevant because new stuff has happened. Exactly. I found a story in the two, 20, uh, 2012 election based on this guy Dan Sullivan who had happened to have been way back when a assistant secretary of state. Like I found that. I mean, that story wouldn't have even mattered previous to a Senate campaign. So you don't, there's stuff in there that we've never even found. We're mostly doing keyword searches, and then if we see somebody else think it's important, we'll take a second look. Anyway, some real reporting was done on this on real policy issues, as well as some gossip among the campaign. Nira Tandon became a star on Reddit because she was so you know inflammatory in her statements. And the Democratic response to that was to say that a lot of this stuff was faked. You couldn't trust it because it was a Russian PSYOP. It was uh, active measures like the KGB used to do, which was bullshit. The mainstream press didn't buy that, and the left-wing press certainly didn't buy it. But it did insert, I think, an element of conspiratorial thinking. Because, and it, it, once again, it came from the Democratic Party of all places. Yeah. And I think that, I really do believe that started the chain of events that made the Podesta emails... More conspirator, more friendly for conspiratorial thinking, and then Mike Cernovich taking the story from whoever. There's, there's, there's apparently some controversy about who even took it from. I don't even care or know. Then Mike Cernovich launched the idea that he, there had been code language in this the most innocuous email that was there. Like everybody saw the email he's talking about and went right by it because it had nothing to do. It was about food. Yeah. And, and, and keep in mind, Podesta is like a fancies himself to be this culinary wizard chef. Yeah, this guy, and plus, he, and, he, and he is the most classist. Like, he, this guy cannot shut the fuck up about <laughs> lobster. I, I've never heard someone, or I've seen someone who is so obsessed with lobster, which <laughs> it doesn't even taste that good, okay? Breaking news. <laughs> but anyway, so he, they launched this idea that this was all code, right? And everybody said, this is dumb. Stop talking about this. Right, pizza means this, and they all they all understood, by the way. What was creepy to me was how everybody understood the code words pedophiles use. <laughs> Which I, Where did people get this lexicon? I had no idea that they used this kind of code language. Well, the only one that people, yeah. I guess, know for sure is cheese pizza specifically. Which, I didn't know the, that. Because of the initial CP. I didn't know that either before. Uh, apparently, that one checks out by itself, just that phrase. But it's code for child pornography, not child sex trafficking ring. But okay, well, in any in any case, in any case, so that happened, and and I think they kind of were tamped down a little bit. I think they wanted to run, but they were restrained a little bit. And I think this might be why it's blowing up now. So it was suppressed a little bit. People said no big deal, and then this email about spirit cooking came out, 
after the initial code word language. And the spirit cooking thing, I, I, I don't really have an explanation for what this is. This is apparently some kind of... I thought it was just some kind of doing one of these, you know, yuppies do all this dumb crap about spirituality because they're, you know, anti-religious or something. And, and so they do these, like, you know, I don't know. It, it's always lame. I've been... I've seen people try to, like, pretend to be spiritual about stuff. It's usually just, like, buying a Buddha statue and being a douchebag. I don't know. It's never a big thing. So I figure spirit cooking, they're going to have some, like, fake seance or something to try to liven up their boring lives. But apparently it has some connection to this performance artist from Eastern Europe. I don't even know. And after that, because it was so weird, you can even hear it in my voice. I'm so ambivalent about what this actually spirit cooking thing is. They, that repressed or minor restraint on reporting on this broke because nobody had a real explanation for what any of this was and then Pizzagate was born because now it was yeah. like, oh, you don't, you know, before you were saying this is all stupid to read this as cheese pizza, now you're admitting you don't know what spirit cooking is and let me tell you what it is. It's a satanic ritual that involves killing children or pretending to kill children yep. and it's all about this perverted stuff and now you don't know anything. You just admitted you didn't know. We know. We've been doing the research. I'm the researcher. So it, it like now it's like the train is flying off the tracks. Like there's nothing anybody can restrain it. And of course, a lot of people have no reason to restrain it because, you know, the election's over. The whole point of WikiLeaks was for many people to give Hillary Clinton the what for, and that's over now. I mean, you've seen WikiLeaks stories from the Podesta emails, which are still there. Like you said, they're still there. Their archive's still there. There's probably still a bunch of stuff in there, but who cares because Hillary's not going to be president. So all that energy is still out there for this breaking story for that around the presidential election and around this quote unquote find that everyone's coming up with. So I think it's just I think those factors combined and mixed into something explosive for the conspiracy right. And yeah. I think there's no way to rein this back in. And also there's no incentive for people who could try to rein it in. Like I mean, I talked to people about when the Pizzagate thing first happened and said, look, man. I know what you're about. You you like Trump, or you don't like Hillary, or whatever. This is a total distraction from what you're trying to do. This is a total waste of your fucking time. This guy Cernovich, I don't know what his game is, but this is total bullshit. And they kind of were like, all right, whatever. We'll just talk. You know, we'll talk about Goldman Sachs. We'll talk about ISIS funding. All the legitimate policy-based stories that the mainstream media even picked up on. And then, when it was, it didn't matter anymore. So no, so no one's telling these people who are closer to the. <laughs> Closer to the, I guess, the more mainstreamish aspect to calm down with this because who cares? The election's over, right? Who care? You don't have to focus your fire now. It doesn't matter. And on the other hand, they felt like they were restrained before that people were trying to cover it up. That's all you have to do. It's the Streisand effect. You know, you're trying to cover it up. And so I think now it's just totally, <laughs> it's just going and going and going. And nobody, I mean, why would I even want to restrain it? Why would anybody? It's, it's their deal. They can get go crazy as they want to about it. And they don't trust anybody anyway because they said, oh, you, you, do, you, you didn't know about spirit cooking, which apparently is like, if you don't know about spirit cooking, you're totally, <laughs> you have no authority on this subject. And I, and I looked into it. I mean, it's, I, I'm familiar with different, you know, occult practices, some of them. And, and I've, I'm actually also pretty familiar with the whole satanic panic of the 1980s. A good friend of mine, um, he majored in, uh, false memory studies um, in a psychology department at UC Irvine. And many of the studies uh, that he did were based on proven false memory 
recovery, which was a which is a part of psychotherapy that was really popular in the 1980s, especially where psychologists with this authoritative, um, you know, sort of projection would would claim by putting you under hypnosis, you could recover memories of of abuse, childhood abuse. And some of those memories that were recovered in the 1980s by children involved pentagrams and satanic rituals and, and different things like that. And it's been scientifically proven that hypnotic regression therapy pr pretty much puts you into an altered dream state um, like mindset. Nothing you're saying under that state um, has anything to do with memories that are being suppressed or repressed or whatever. And so I see a, a bunch of different things congealing together because of this and part of me is wondering who's benefiting from this um you know, it's <laughs> obviously it's obviously not john podesta or <laughs> because even if he wanted people in dc to think he was this dark shadowy figure who you know who had sophisticated crazy taste in art or whatever i'm sure he didn't want people to think he was running a child sex trafficking ring in the basement of a pizza parlor but but then on the other hand you have real elements that are being mixed in together with this whole conspiracy train of Pizzagate, which is the Jeffrey Epstein thing. People keep using that as like, well, this is proof, you know, that Bill Clinton, you know, he flew on the Lolita Express. He went to Orgy Island, um, you know, but nobody's talking about how Trump used to have <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein come to Miralago all the time. And there's quotes of Trump saying uh, kind of joking around about Epstein's questionable taste in young women. And and even there's actual reports from back when Epstein used to go to Miralago um, where Trump was nervous about how many young women he was bringing in and that the frequency he was bringing them in because it looked too obvious. Um, I don't think there are any actual quotes from Trump, but this is reported by people on his staff at the time. So, there are connections to both of them here, but what's being completely eclipsed is any of Trump's potential connections to Epstein or Orgy Island, which, you know, maybe it's benefiting Trump. But the only evidence I have to suggest that any of this is being steered or driven in any way by people associated with Trump is when Eric Prince um, went on a Breitbart radio show. Early on in this process, I think it was like right after spirit cooking kind of hit the internet. Um, <laughs> and he actually claimed that there were arrests about to be made in the Anthony Weiner case. That the NYPD had just written up warrants and they were in an internal battle with the FBI where they were trying to make arrests uh, in people in the uh, Clinton campaign. That somehow the Clinton Foundation investigation had mixed together with the Anthony Weiner one. And it wasn't just about the emails that were found in Anthony Weiner's phone or whatever. That it was actually somehow Anthony Weiner's crimes were associated with potential crimes in the Hillary campaign. And I feel like that little push did a lot to make people think that somehow, you know, Anthony Weiner's potential pedophilia uh, was a, was somehow associated with people in the Hillary Clinton campaign. And then Huma Abedin started to get lumped in together with it. And then that child trafficker in Haiti uh, a thing from the Podesta email started to get mixed in together. And yeah, then you started yeah. to bring in both Podesta brothers because, oh, look, hey, this case in Portugal where a, a girl was missing um, in 2006, the police composites look like both of the Podesta brothers. So now you have this <laughs> intense snowball effect. Um, and then it just keeps getting worse and worse. I mean, I don't know if you saw this the other day. Someone actually 
did a periscope broadcast from inside comet pizza um talking about how they were just really weirded out by the menu and how they thought that everybody there was somehow <laughs> part of the child sex trafficking ring and then james alfontis himself the owner of comet pizza brought some protesters inside on a tour to show them the inside of the restaurant um because they wanted wow. to yeah so it's gotten to a pretty crazy level and actually i just saw the other day Someone commenting on a We Are Change video saying that someone should bring a gun into Comet Pizza oh, no. and shoot James Alphantis. And I was like, holy shit. Like, that's... This is how far it's getting. You know, that's just, that's scary to see something like that. I mean, I've seen death threats on the internet before, but after kind of peeking in and out of this phenomenon for the past two weeks and then seeing that, I was... It really fucking upset me. Well, I, I, the, what's interesting about it, and I, I think I try I mean, I theorized on why this has its own motor. Like, that's the thing that's crazy is the motor for the WikiLeaks scandal, if you like, was clearly the election. And when the election ended, the motor stopped. I mean, it, you know, it ran out of gas because who cares anymore, right? Which is, by the way, is actually reminding myself here as someone who's written a lot about it. Maybe we should go back in and look for more stories because just because the election ended doesn't mean there's not more stories in there. But, you know, the, the impetus to do it is gone, right? It was all about the election and, and you know, getting, getting the American people or, the, or your readers to know everything they could about the two candidates before they went to go vote, right? That's the public interest. This thing doesn't have an external motor. It has an internal motor among the people who are interested in it. And like I said, because of the way this kind of yinged and yanged around... No one can really get in there and say, guys, no. Because they already, we already played that card with the first Pizzagate, and then we all got caught you know, by surprise <laughs> with the spirit cooking thing, and, and we're like, oh, okay, maybe he's doing some weird stuff. We don't know. And that was like all they needed to hear. That was all, just that shrug was all they needed to go rip-roaring into fantasy land. So... I mean, I agree. I there's there's people I talk to on the fringe, or there's things I see, and it is it's still going on, and I can't believe. It. I mean, this is you know this is like the end of November. What is even the point of this? It well, the point of it now is you know you got a bunch of junior detectives who think they've stumbled onto the truth. I don't know why they care so much, but of course, if you believe what they believe, which is that they're going to save <laughs> these non-existent children's lives or something. Then you seem like a kind of a jerk for telling them to back off, or of course, even worse. Pedophile. Why are you telling me? Why? Yeah. Why are you telling me to let this go? You're part of PizzaGate. We're part of it. Yeah. <laughs> You're part of it. Well, You're part of it. And that's. And let's just say that that's existed on all sides of conspiracy culture for a while. I mean, I, a lot of people have encountered it within 9/11 conspiracy culture. If you don't say this about Building Seven, if you don't say <laughs> that the Israelis did it, if you don't say these certain things you're you're part of it or you're not you know you're not your controlled opposition or something so there's all you're suspect you're suspect yeah, but it took years for that mentality to evolve <laughs> in the 9-11 truth culture this took weeks where we're already being accused of being somehow part of it or covering it up but and and, and not to mention that uh, last time i checked there were about you know, some on some days there's about ten videos per hour being made about Pizzagate. On other days there's about fifty <laughs> oh, on YouTube if you do an hourly search, which is incredible in of itself. But I have a conspiracy about the conspiracy of Pizzagate, <laughs> where oh boy, 
where let's just assume that go back to what I was saying earlier about how much information there still is in those Podesta emails alone that people haven't found yet. And I'm not suggesting that Podesta is driving PTA and wants, wants this conspiracy <laughs> to evolve. But what if just, let's just assume that people are being distracted away from something that's worse in those emails that we haven't found yet somehow. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's for sure, but, I just think there's so much more information in there that now that the election is over where people aren't as motivated to look for. And now that Pizzagate has distracted the entire conspiracy movement, they're also not motivated to look for. So in effect, the emails are probably being sifted through, you know, except for cheese pizza and walnut sauce and code words for Pizzagate and that whole thing. <laughs> they're not being, they're not being keyword searched anymore for the more important things by as many people. So I think that's the net result of it. I'm, and when I said that, that's my conspiracy about it. I'm not saying that that means someone is driving it on purpose, but you know, that's what's happening is people aren't seriously looking at these emails as much anymore. Um, so I don't wait, know. Wait, 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 can I, let me just try to yeah. follow on. You're saying that your conspiracy about the conspiracy is that someone's pushing it to delegitimize the rest of the emails, not delegitimize them to just take, well, the theory goes that if if there is something worse in the emails that's there still undiscovered, then people's focus is just not on it right now. Um, that's all I mm. meant. Or there, there just could be. I mean, I want. I just want to see people looking through those emails more because what I can say for sure is that I don't think, at least obviously, the conspiracy movement isn't looking through those emails anymore for real stuff. Um, <laughs> You know, I think the election the election happening has demotivated regular journalists to look through them as well. Because what's the point, as you were saying earlier? Right, right. But that so, that would have happened. That would have happened regardless of pizza. That's beer. true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but, <laughs> I can't believe Pizzagate's still going on. I agree. Well, here's the other. Here's a theory on this. Actually, I have a theory on the system that is that is fueling Pizzagate. One of the things that happened this cycle was. The structures, not just the legitimacy, but the structures of the mainstream media were disrupted. So not only does nobody believe them, but people have new structures. They can spread it on Facebook. They can use Reddit. They can use 4chan. They can use what Twitter. And there's no one to say, knock it off, which would have happened previously because people who are running the structures would have said, hey, man, I need to put real news in this ecosystem and you're cluttering it up with all this conspiracy crap, go to InfoWars. Or they take now, a terrible approach and the CEO from Reddit actually went in and edited people's yeah, posts that about was, it. Oh my God. Which just made people believe been, in it more. That, could but, not, that, that was like the worst possible thing <laughs> to do. I, I cannot tell you how terrible, like if you were, yeah, that's the, that's the other thing, like People, the events seem to be conspiring, if you like, to make this story keep going. And that one will forever, I mean, there's people now who will never give up. I mean, there's people who probably have already decided that they're going to spend the rest of their lives investigating Pizzagate. But that was just, <laughs> <laughs> that, just pushed, that just put it over the top. So the structures themselves are so democratized that it becomes an enthusiasm contest. And no one is more enthusiastic than these people. And, and th plus, there's no competing enthusiasms. 
because there's there's not it's not like it's one pipe and hey I got to put real stuff down this pipe I can't have your crap going down it you know there's a bunch of different pipes and people are drawn like a moth to flame to the enthusiasm or the interest there's lots of people who just go online to to kind of like go like LARP like live action role play as detectives or <laughs> you know what I mean like you know and so like PizzaGate is kind of on the one hand it's a weird instance that led to it, but on the other hand, it's kind of what's happening and what's going to happen in the future because there's no one who can really say no. And in fact, anybody who dares say no now, <laughs> let alone someone in power or authority, is just fueling it even more. So I think Pizzagate is... It's not interesting because of what their story they're claiming they're uncovering because I don't think there is a story there, but it's interesting in how it happens and how information flows and, and groups of tribes form around certain narratives. So I think it's like a sociological issue. It's very interesting. And it could be and it could be the way it's panning out and working through, it could be a, a wave of what's to come. And I think if you want to trace it back, you can look back to Gamergate, where these people succeeded and now they feel invincible. And now just telling them no or trying to explain to them reasonably how they're wrong they don't care. They're they've it's like a game. They don't they, you know, it's online, it's abstract and it's like, well, this is someone who's disagreeing with me. I don't have to take their disagreement seriously. I just have to realize how I can get around their disagreement or get around them or push them out. So, I think it's 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 an interesting phenomenon of web 2.0, you know, social media and tribalism and conspiracy theory. But yeah, it's it's def yeah, this is this is the truth or movement on crack. I mean, this is this is going crazy, very fast. And what you keep wondering for those of us who are catching it because it's so such a phenomena, even peripherally just catching it, is is the intensity this quick mean it's going to burn out, or does it mean it's just going to keep getting more intense? Like you know, it's hitting truth or level intensity, but does that mean that it's because it got there so fast, it's gonna, it's more it's gonna burn out faster, or does that mean it's just gonna it just hit its benchmark that much faster? <laughs> In which case, it means it's just gonna keep compounding. No, it's it's and that's why it's so fascinating. And you're right; it's not because the story itself is 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 totally Ridiculous. over the top. It's it's cartoonish. But I was just thinking, you know, there are some there is some interesting connective tissue in it that might point to something completely different. And I, I didn't think of this until we spoke today, but some of those businesses around this, you know, supposed uh, child sex trafficking pizza parlor, which I don't believe, just want to state that for the record. Neither um, do I, for Com the record. Comet Pizza in Washington, <laughs> D.C. There's businesses next to it and across the street, which apparently in some ways – uh, were involved in Hillary's campaign. Uh, the the people who own these businesses, um, or they have connections to people who helped with the Hillary campaign in some way. So it is maybe there's a different story there where there is this little block of businesses, or I don't know if you call them fronts, if you will, <laughs> for the, an arm of the Hillary Clinton machine um, in this little block of D.C. that people are overlooking. Um, you know, in lieu of this more shocking over-the-top conspiracy theory. So, you know, maybe there is a, st an, a legitimate story there, something far less sensational, um, but it's just, again, it's being <laughs> overlooked um, by this, you know, 
what we're just talking about. <laughs> Hillary supporters in Washington D.C. I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no story here. There's nothing. Here. I mean, the more that you say it, the more you're commenting on it, the more it's like a motivation for them. It's like you know, like there's a good you know people say like the best way to motivate me is to tell me I can't do something. Well, that's a great idea for people who want to overcome disabilities or become a star athletes. It's a terrible thing if you're a conspiracy theorist online. <laughs> people telling me I'm wrong is exactly what I need to learn to go on and blog about this for 24 hours straight. So I don't know what to tell these people. I think there's literally nothing here. I understand this is in a way sexy. I, I, I don't know. Or it's like very honorable because you're protecting children if this were true, which it isn't. But jeez, uh, I don't know. I just I'm really hoping this thing just burns out. <laughs> oh, and there is a there is a Brexity um, flavor to it too because this notion of underground child sex trafficking networks of of the elite has been popular in British UK conspiracy theory culture for a lot for a long time. Like it's kind of been a more of a a prominent thing there, and I feel like. It's kind. Of, I don't know if that has any connection to to the just shift to the right in uh, England that we're seeing happen here. Um, but I, you know, there might be. I know the satanic panic thing is definitely associated with evangelical right wing culture. Um, well, also, I mean, I would. Here's the one thing I would say is, you were, we were both talking about earlier. Where's all this energy from the election going to go? Well, for the conspiratorially minded who were a big fr fraction, by the way, or a big faction within the right-wing Trump supporters, this is where their energy is going. They're not missing a beat. Other people are looking on the what to do after the election. These people have just moved on. Trump was their kind of hobby. They're making memes. They're making Pepe memes. They're making videos. They're attacking Hillary. You know, November 8th for them was just another day. <laughs> on, to on to Pizzagate. <laughs> yeah. And they found a bunch of comrades... You know, a lot of people who were not political or conspiratorial came into the conspiratorial movement. I mean, Infowars had record traffic. Breitbart had record traffic. And you look at that ecosystem that's energized and now filled with new minds, and suddenly the same old, the same old hits, right, satanic, child-molesting elite, suddenly that's back in play. And, but now you've got twice the audience. And so why stop on November 9th? Why not just keep running? And so maybe Pizzagate is in part that latent energy that ended after they achieved their mission, which of course only emboldened them to tell everyone to piss off that much more and not doubt themselves. Maybe Pizzagate is the continuation. That maybe that's what happened to that to the um, the conspiratorial right wing fringe. Is Pizzagate is their post election party? Yeah, and that's where that energy went. <laughs> yeah. And and we were talking earlier about how, you know, that the bedrock of that was Vince Foster, um, you know, all the all the Clinton um, <laughs> conspiracy realm in the in the nineties um, that sort of bubbled up into this more, you know, and then it, and then it became all about all the um, rape accusations against Bill Clinton. I mean that then that got sort of channeled from that you know thing, even though a lot of those are credible, um, but it was originally sort of all festering together more of an uh, the right wing i mean the clinton conspiracy uh thing was almost a world in and of itself for a while 
Yeah, but yeah. what's interesting about this, and this is this is like one of the greatest ironies. There's so many layers to this election, but one of the layers that has got to be the greatest irony ever is there was this right-wing billionaire called Richard Melonscape, and he uh, was sort of this tragic figure. I think he died of brain cancer recently, or he was diagnosed at least, and he had all this money, and he pumped it into all these uh, you know right-wing think tanks and everything, and he had a particular obsession with Bill Clinton. And so he created the funding, which was millions of dollars, millions of dollars. So a lot of press people and communications people, they'll do anything for money. Let's just keep it real. But it's just, and then there were true believers too. And he, it was called the Arkansas Project. And the guy who ran it, or was a big part of it, was a guy named David Brock, who you'll, which is a familiar name for people in this cycle. This was in the, this was in the, uh, I guess, late 80s, because it started before Clinton ran for president. It was this was his opposition research file, and the Arkansas Project is where all these conspiracies first happened. They basically David Brock and these other people went down there. The American Spectator was part of it, all these other Richard Melonscape organs, and they went down there and basically looked for any conspiratorial story anybody in politics would tell them, and then tried to make a big deal out of it. And sometimes people tell you the truth, and sometimes people BS you, and then sometimes I think they just made stuff up. So, you know, this, the idea that Clinton was involved in smuggling cocaine out of Arkansas because of this Iran-Contra connection, that's from David Brock. The idea that, um, he, that he was this rapist, that he, was, that he would, you know, force people, state troopers would use him to for, force women, that came from David Brock. All, and then, of course, the real stuff, you know, uh, Paula Jones or Jennifer Flowers, and Basically everything they could get on him, real or imagined, and then of course you know white water came out of this. So did um, let's see, what was the other big one? Vince Foster. The idea that Vince Foster, you know, okay, some guy close to the Clintons died. Well, what happened? Well, how about you know he committed suicide? He was killed because he was having an affair with Hillary. Is there any evidence to back that up? None, zero. But we're going to put this in this big thing called the Clinton Files, which is funded by this right wing billionaire. Now, cut to <laughs> 2016. And who is on the side defending the Clintons and they're running their super PAC? David Brock, who's had a complete conversion. He wrote a confessional book called Blinded by the Right. He was in one of our uh, films we both like, uh, right? Uh, Adam Curtis film. Oh, yeah. Power of, Nightmare, Power of Nightmares. I've read part he, of Blinded by the Right, not, not the whole thing. And so he's the one defending the Clintons against his own conspiracies that he put into, you know, decades ago came up with. And who's writing the book? saying about rehashing David Brock's conspiracies? Roger Stone, which wrote a book called The Clinton's War on Women with wow. a new twist. With a new twist. And what's the new twist? It wasn't just that Bill had these affairs. He's a rapist. It's he's a rapist, and Hillary covered them up. And, well, and this got major play. Remember, Trump brought these women who claimed to have been raped by Bill Clinton and may well have been, I don't know. He brought them to the debate, the last debate. He brought them and referenced them in the crowd. It's the craziest Roger, thing of all time. Yeah, and, and so so David Brock was ultimately part of the group that would ultimately hurt Clinton, even though he was fighting for her decades later. That's how crazy this whole thing is. <laughs> Are you ready to get your mind blown? Yeah. Guess who uh, James Alfonta's ex-boyfriend was? Who? David Brock. 
<laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> there we go. You just cracked the pizza gate. Get seriously, Robbie. You broke it. Cue the Watergate music. Cue the uh, all the presidents' men music. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> so I guess that's a that's a good way to uh, wind down this discussion. We um, just we just dude we just broke pizza gate. What's, what's left? To, what's left to do? We solved it. You just do it running a vendetta against his uh, ex-boyfriend. I mean, that's your heart out. Beat your heart out, eight chan. Yeah, this is all (laughs) David Brock's. Um, so I guess the the PizzaGate project. Yeah. So we already talked about how alarming the future is going to be. We already talked about where this post-election energy is going to go. Um, but. Do you want to leave the listeners with any last thoughts on what this election is going to mean for the future um, that you haven't said yet? Uh, like, you know, is there, I guess maybe we didn't really go into this, but I'll, this will be the final question. What to you is the scariest thing about a Trump presidency? And is there anything hopeful to you about a Trump presidency whether it be foreign policy, domestic, you know, and that applies to both. Um, okay, the scariest thing for me from a Trump presidency is that it was all an act, particularly the domestic stuff, and he's just going to let the Republicans get everything they've ever wanted for the last 30 years, and he's not going to stop it at all, which is going to mean, you know, more, you know, anarcho-capitalism, <laughs> libertarianism economically, and he's going to go around bombing the hell out of any country, particularly Iran, who crosses him or doesn't show him enough respect. So that's the doomsday scenario. A good scenario is that, and there's two there's two options for the good scenario on foreign policy. One is he actually meant what he said in a lot of this stuff and has a more humble foreign policy and doesn't get entangled. That would be the best case scenario. But another good scenario would be he unwittingly <laughs> does so much to damage the empire that the world resets because it no longer trusts America and puts America in this position to be the global dominant player. Now, if that can be done peacefully, I'll be amazed, but that could be like an un- like he unwittingly, everybody just goes, you know what, we can't have this unipolar system where America runs this global empire because look who's running it. And so they all sort of slowly but surely gain more sovereignty and autonomy and, and America no longer is even capable of launching things like the Iraq war. So those would be two, those would be one, wittingly he does it and it ends okay, and unwittingly he does it and it ends okay. Um, Those are possible scenarios. Um, Domestically, I don't think his trade program will really work. I mean, there's really nothing he can do. He wants 4% GDP growth. That's like sustained 4% growth. That's really going to be hard to do with rising Asia. I mean, they're just getting a bigger share of the economy. There's not that much left. There's also going to be climate change, which he's in complete denial about. That's something even his, you know, people who praise him probably would agree with him that it's, you know, a Chinese conspiracy or whatever he said it was. So, I mean, I think it's, there's a lot of reasons to worry about this, depending on, well, of course, it depends on what you want to see. If you want to see America become a more, a less dominant on the world stage, I think Trump's probably good, <laughs> provided nothing gets too bloody in the meantime. But uh, I think the domestic policies are going to be a disaster. But there could be some hope on foreign policy. 
That's the best I can do. Well, <laughs> I'll just really quickly say that my greatest fear is similar to yours. Um, although I worry that his foreign policy might actually take on more of that Islamophobic character that comes from people like Frank Gaffney. And there'll be a domestic mindset that's attached to that, that that'll rekindle sort of those post 9-11, you know, Bush era fear of Muslims and, and terrorism again, um, regardless of if there are any actual, you know, attacks here or whatever. And my, uh, I, I guess the most hopeful situation for me would be just a detente with the Russian situation. Um, and at him oh, yeah, actually that, following through with yeah. that. Um, but I, I guess, the, uh, well, I should mention the other scary part of the, his domestic policy is sort of what Rudy Giuliani talked about, you know, about law and order and the way he characterized, you know, that sort of post RNC Trump um, version of his domestic policy where he started to describe the ghettos as hell and stuff <laughs> like that. It just, that, that. That worries me because I'm we have everything set up for you know, full militarized police response, riot police response to civil unrest already. But I'm, I'm worried about where that could go under Trump. Um, but we'll just have to see, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, domestically, I would just add, because I apparently glossed over it a bit, I think you're going to see, if, if, if this keeps escalating, you're going to see, like, vigilante-type militia, like, Oath Keepers. But instead of, like, pushing them back, like, he, like most people do, he's going to be like, oh, it's Sheriff Opio great guy oh oath keepers they should have some you know they should be allowed to carry guns and police the ghettos since they're so out of control like oh, that could yeah. be very uh, that could go very badly very quickly yep yep yeah i talked a little bit about that with um eric Dreitzer on, on a podcast a couple of weeks ago um we were t- we were kind of thinking you know it, it's we have a scenario here where it could be almost like at the info warriors or the people who are well-armed and really extra paranoid and nationalistic could be almost become like a new brown shirts um, in, in this country. I mean, that's a really bad scenario uh, that, you know, I, I, I think is unlikely, but it, it, you know, it's the potential is there. Um, so I hate to leave the, uh, <laughs> leave us on such a glib um, note here, but well, well, we'll go get some cheese pizza, so everything will be great. Yeah. I'll meet you down at Comet Ping Pong after we're done recording. <laughs> <laughs>